ahead and take your speed up your number one now, runway 27, clear to land, green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello and welcome to the Green Dot, EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. My name is Hal Bryan. I'm one of your hosts. I'm EAA's managing editor for print and digital content and publications. And over at one corner of the triangle, it is... <laughs> I'm Chris Henry, the museum manager here. And Chris, uh, we have a guest in the studio with us. And I don't mind saying this is somebody... Uh, I'll just embarrass him up front and then make it worse. This is somebody I've wanted to, to, uh, to meet uh, for quite some time. And oh. it's a, it's a, it's a real pleasure and an honor to have, uh, have this guest here. So why don't you tell them who I'm talking about? Absolutely. You know, um, we're here recording during space day. And one of the things, uh, we always try to get is someone who's flown in space or works in the aerospace industry. Uh, and we're very fortunate, uh, to have Jared Isaacman volunteers time, come all the way out here and spend some time with us and, and talk at space day and, and agree to be on the podcast here. So Jared, welcome to the green dot. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you. Well, so we got to jump right in. My favorite question, I always ask everybody, I think every show, because they always have a cool story, is, you know, what first got you interested in flying and in space flight? So uh, good questions. This goes right to the to the movie industry. So I think uh, for aviation, it was Top Gun, which I'm sure is applicable to a lot of us around here. And then uh, and then Space Camp, another, another good 80s movie. Oh, and, Leah uh, Thompson. Yes. Yeah. So uh, between the two of those, I was like... Uh, you know, pretty wound up becoming pretty enamored in in aviation and uh, and human space flight. Uh, although one seemed certainly a lot more achievable than the other, and that's why I became a pilot. You know, it's it's fascinating to me to to hear that because you've got this inspiration striking, uh, no pun intended, at that right time at that early age. Um, but career wise, you you went a much more entrepreneurial route. Did you? Did you think that all these interests would eventually come together? Could you have predicted when you were a young person watching Top Gun and Space Camp that by following that entrepreneurial path that you did alongside the flying, that might bring you back around to where you are now? I certainly didn't think that would be the case, um, you know, kind of in the beginning of my my business career, uh, really, which that was entirely fueled by just a hatred for high school. I, I was, the, <laughs> I'm, I'm the youngest of... Um, uh, of my siblings, so um, my brother's 15 years older, my sister's 13 years older, and then uh, my other brother's eight years older. So when I was in high school, uh, you know, and having to like raise my hand to ask permission to go to the bathroom, they were out, you know, either in college, graduated college, med school, but they were living their lives. So it was just very motivated, raised very independent to kind of, you know, um, take care of yourself to some extent. So I, that was what ultimately <laughs> uh, drove me into business was um, I got to get out of high school. Um, but I uh, wound up, you know, kind of just really almost burning myself out very early on in, in my career. And, and it drew me back to my uh, like childhood interest in aviation, which was sure I saw the movies, but I mean, I built my first computer because I wanted to fly a flight simulator. I, I went to the <laughs> aviation version of Space Camp uh, so at that point, you know, business and, and aviation had come together, but still it would have been many, many more years before I ever thought there was a possibility of, you know, human spaceflight somehow coming back in the picture. Well, that's great. And, and when you started to fly, what, uh, how did you actually start? What was step one? Showing up at an airport and yeah. signing up for lessons? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so I, um, at this stage, uh, my company was in central New Jersey, and I researched where there were good flight schools, and Allentown, Pennsylvania came up, which wasn't very, wasn't very far from where I lived. So um, I, it was, I, I've told this story many times. I literally woke up on my keyboard one day, and I, you know, I was probably 
you know, 18 or 19 still working in the basement. And I was like, I, I gotta, I gotta have something else in my life. So uh, again, researched uh, good flight school options, went out there and um, the, uh, the instructor they paired me with, uh, I wound up hiring because uh, I wasn't going to be able to adhere to any normal schedule. So I needed someone who could kind of work with me on that. <laughs> and uh, well, we've been flying ever since more than 20 years later. That's great. Uh, Chris, before I hand it off to yeah. you, I've, I've got to ask, uh, you mentioned using flight simulator. What, which version, what, uh, what kind of flight sim did you have at home? Okay. So, uh, that, that first computer I built was to play Falcon 3.0. Oh, excellent choice. Uh, so it, it was very much more in the, you know, kind of the combat flight simulators before, uh, you know, the Microsoft flight simulators yeah. and such came about. Gotcha. That's great. That's, uh, those who've listened to the show and know my background know why that's of interest to me, but we'll move on. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, uh, you know, just out of curiosity, what were the aircraft that you trained in? Were they like Cessna's Pipers or what were you in? I started in a 172 and then uh, I wound up purchasing a, um, a 182 Turbo and um, completed my um, my private and uh, commercial in it and then um, an instrument rating. And then I, uh, I moved on to a Baron uh, and I was very... Um, I mean, I wanted to fly jets, so I uh, I, tr- I tried to progress as, as quickly as I can and came up with every excuse I could to go flying. Um, yeah. Well, so tell us a little bit about how how did the interest in, in – and I, I shouldn't say the interest, but the actual pursuit of flying in space. How did that how did that come about, and how did you decide, yep, this is what I'm going to go do? So uh, in April of 2008, I, um, I did a uh, round-the-world flight in a Citation Mustang. So it was um, – I mean, it was pretty cool for that, you know, it was the start of the whole VLJ boom, if you will. But, um, you know, you, you had what I would consider a pretty big evolution in, um, you know, kind of cockpit avionics where the amount of information available to you, I mean, you, it almost took a lot of the flight planning off the table. And uh, I was like, well, this this might have been, you know, kind of that technological leap to, you know, enable like a real record attempt. Um, you know, the, the previous kind of light jet, uh, you know, speed around the world record was... Uh, I mean, it was it was set some twenty years earlier. It was about um, you know more than more than 80, 80 hours. And um, in any case, uh, we we wound up undertaking it. We didn't we didn't beat the record that year. We wound up getting it the next year. But because of that eff- uh, effort, and we also were using it to raise uh, raise funds and aware- awareness for the Make a Wish Foundation. I received an invitation um, from uh, you know Dr. Peter Dumanis and uh, and some others that were involved in the early days of commercial of the commercial space industry. Again, this is 2008. Peter, uh, founder of the XPRIZE Foundation. Yeah. I did a lot of work with him at that time as well. Yeah, yeah, great. I mean, just a good great, guy. great human being, unbelievable background. To, I mean, talk about serial entrepreneur. That, that guy's everywhere. <laughs> uh, but anyway, he invited me to come to uh, Baikonur in uh, Kazakhstan to see uh, Soyuz launch. And there were many folks that were there from the early, uh, early sp- commercial space industry. It, it piqued my interest at that point of, hey, this is actually potentially possible. And um, I stayed close and just periodically knocked on the door from time to time. And, you know, I mean, it wound up coming, you know, it was 12 plus years later, uh, you know, it came back to being, um, well, reality. Back to reality. Um, well, you came to, you know, our attention kind of in, across multiple different paths and, uh, you know, founding, uh, you know, along the way, you founded something like the 37th largest Air Force or some number like that. Um, so I want to talk about Draken in just just a minute, but um, there there was that uh, there was the uh, the black black diamond jet team, if I'm remembering sure. correctly, and of course, you know, more recently the uh, the countdown documentary on Netflix, a five episode series, and that's something that we watched at home. Uh, 
that I thought was riveting. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. Um, it had a, a profound emotional impact on me, which I wouldn't necessarily have have expected. So maybe you can step us through, you know, that trip to Baikonur and then easing into this idea of of having this mission, and especially the fact that you could have just sort of bought a joyride if you wanted, and that's very much not what you did. You you were the real the real deal, the real commander of of an actual orbital mission, the first all civilian orbital mission. What was the thought process processes there, and and what made you decide not to just sort of buy a window seat and go along for a for a joyride and come back and say you did it? Um, yeah, so you asked you asked about a lot there. Uh, uh, right, it was about eighty <laughs> questions there. Sorry about that. Step us through the inspiration for mission, and then we can go on from there. Uh, sure. Um, so, like I said, I kind of. Um, Back, you know, coming off that 2008, I, uh, you know, periodically knocked on the door. I mean, actually, it was as early as to late 2008 where there was a there was some some documentation exchanged on uh, on the possibility of, of piloting Dragon. Um, now, you know, obviously, it would be uh, it'd be 12 years later before Dragon even had its first crude flight with um, uh, with Demo Two. Uh, but but there was obviously very strong interest right from the get go, and um, but you know time moves on. You pursue other things. Um, you know, Draken is a great example. Defense aerospace business where we did accumulate you know well over a hundred fighter jets is uh, be, basically be a, a, a training tool for uh, the United States uh, Department of Defense and our allies. Basically, contract bad guys, which was awesome. There was amazing air show flying and such, um, which was the Black Diamond jet team. And, uh, and then in 2020, uh, again, late 2020, had a, another conversation with, uh, with SpaceX and just brought up the fact that, you know, just knocking on the door again. again. And th- there was other kind of conversations related to that. And it was within, and this was in um, like September of 2020, uh, within two weeks, even before NASA resumed operational flights with, with SpaceX, which would have been the Crew-1 mission, uh, Inspiration4 was born. Uh, now, to me, when I was having those conversations at the time, I had no idea that there wasn't, uh, you know, 50 other people, you know, uh, waiting in line. Um, I would have thought for sure there should have been. Um, but, um, you know, they basically offered me the opportunity if I wanted to wanted to lead the first the first all civilian mission to space. And, and when they did that, then that became, you know, uh, very clear to me. It was going to be it was going to be a mission with great responsibility Um you know, and and that we had to put an awful lot of thought into it about, uh, you know, who the crew members would be and what they would represent, and um, and then something even bigger than the mission in itself, which is a very strong charitable component, which has been part of almost every one of my, you know, various aviation endeavors for the last you know fifteen years or so, and that that to me is just it, it's very obvious why it needs to be the case. I mean, even long before you've had you know commercial space missions, even when it was just government missions, there's always been the the argument about why we are investing so much in space because space is expensive. I mean, space is still extraordinarily expensive. It's it's come down to such an extent that you can have commercial missions, but very very expensive. So throughout the entire history of the space program, there's been the arguments of shouldn't we be applying those funds elsewhere, right? Uh, and if you take that first civilian mission to orbit and you make it a bunch of uh, drinking buddies going up into space, uh, you're not going to win over a, a lot of supporters about what what this final frontier could really represent for all of humankind. Um, so to me, it was, uh, it, was a, it was a big responsibility. It was an obvious responsibility from the start that this had to be done right. 
and I think that's what we did with Inspiration4. It was unbelievable crew members that I was lucky enough to to assemble for that mission, and we, we vastly exceeded all our goals, uh, the on-orbit objectives and and our fundraising for St. Jude. Well, and so a couple times here, um, and, I, and I know anybody that is a, a, a follower of this knows that uh, you certainly have a you know, a tie and, and, and have done wonderful things for St. Jude. Can you tell us why you picked that, that particular one? Is there a reason? Yeah, I've been, uh, been very close to an, a number of, of charitable organizations throughout my, my business and aviation career. Like I said, almost every, you know, aviation adventure I've ever been on, I've tried to, tried to incorporate some sort of charitable component. And, um, most of them, if you think back to like our air show days and, and those record flights were all the Make-A-Wish Foundation, and uh, it occurred to me when we were assembling, you know, what, what became Inspiration4, that this was a big enough platform that was going to reach such an audience that, you know, if we were to raise as much money as I thought we'd be able to do, it would make such a potential impact, um, you know, that if, if ultimately St. Jude is successful, you don't need to grant as many wishes. Um, and it was like, this is big enough that, you know, we can go right to the heart of the problem, which is trying to conquer childhood cancer. That was a, an absolutely an incredible effort. I mean, that's got to be one of the largest sort of single fundraising charitable events ever. I, it's, it's the final total was it was north of two hundred and fifty million dollars that was raised. Uh, it is, and it, it's still going. I mean, it's part of the Polaris program now. Wow. Um, so wow. we, you know, we haven't we haven't stopped trying to realize SpaceX's dream, which is. You know, making the world more interesting as people can journey among the stars and right. make life multiplanetary, or or St. Jude's vision, which is incredible, that no child should die in the dawn of life. And that was that such a big part of uh, of seeing the documentary, and and as I said, we're coming into it from that that angle and being able to see that. Um, one of the other things that was so striking to me about it as that story unfolded and realizing what your role was um, was seeing you and and putting together training programs in the jets can you talk a little bit about that because again that that's what really hit me and i said this is not i i would have nothing against you if you just bought a ticket and went along for a smiley ride uh like you said a bunch of drinking buddies but but you you took the responsibility to train and acclimate the rest of your crew to high g's and things like that can you talk about how that came about Sure. I mean, you know, from the start of Inspiration4 and even now through, you know, the Polaris program, there are things that SpaceX does, which are obviously extraordinary, um, and what they contribute to human spaceflight for NASA, which is they have a great academic program for, um, you know, orbital mechanics and understanding the systems of Falcon and Dragon, how to, you know, live and uh, be productive in, in space. But they don't have the other uh, elements that, that NASA puts their astronauts through. They don't have a, a fleet of T-38s. Uh, they, don't, they don't contract Nulls course or, you know, outdoor wilderness training and such. So, um, and maybe that was one of the reasons why we were such a good fit from the start with, with Inspiration4 was that I could bring these things to the table. And, um, and I think it was, uh, you know, really important. You know, there, I don't think there is a perfect human spaceflight mission where there aren't some things that, that go wrong and it's fully expected as part of the training. It's why you live in a simulator so much is that when things aren't operating perfectly, you can still kind of push through and be happy and productive. And, and that was no different for us. We definitely had things that weren't perfect. And I can I can definitely tell you, you know, some of those outside elements of our training, especially some of the wilderness and you know, the high altitude climbing will really push people way outside of their comfort zone and taught our crew how to be productive uh, when they are feeling 
uh, you know, so much less than perfect, uh, absolutely came to be in space and, um, and was able to help everyone uh, kind of push through and, and achieve all our objectives. So. Wow. Out of your training regime, would you say the, the wilderness training was the toughest or was there another part that was really harder? Well, I think uh, the you know the academics were were probably very tough on all of us from from the get go. I mean, you know, we we basically the Inspiration Four crew was assembled essentially at random. I didn't know any of my crew members before you know uh, we we came together for the announcement together, and that was by design. I mean, we wanted to engage the public and you know um, and get people to. Um, you know, kind of participate in this to, to generate interest. And it was uh, in all part of, again, part of the bigger objectives with St. Jude and such. And um, so, you know, you brought a lot of people together that hadn't spent their whole lives necessarily trying to become astronauts and develop that, you know, kind of educational foundation that's needed. So there were, you know, we didn't have any engineers and such on our team. So I think kind of day one, you know, even even with my aviation background, I mean, orbital mechanics is, I mean, pretty much everything is backwards at that point. So, <laughs> um, so I, I'd say that you know the first uh, first month and uh, you know was a little bit of death by PowerPoint, but we all picked up on it, and um, and from there I'd say, you know, I think the hardest from you know uh, you know individual effort. And, and had the greatest reward was without a doubt the Mount Rainier climb uh, because it, uh, again, it's getting comfortable being uncomfortable and, um, you know, you're, you're, you're high altitude, you don't feel good, the, you know, the food's, the food doesn't taste good, you're, you know, it's, um, you know, you're cold. It, there's nothing, uh, you know, it's not like the bathroom situation is great. I mean, all these <laughs> things are very similar to being in a spacecraft, uh, especially when you're all kind of huddled up together in a tent. So uh, it was a, it was a, you know, a perfect environment, I, I think. And actually, like I mentioned before, served us so well when, uh, when you're actually on mission and things don't go totally as planned. So here's the, uh, the most obvious question and the hardest one to, to answer, but we, we've got to. And that is, can you... Can you try to describe what it felt like, uh, you know, once you're on orbit and like the first time you got to, when they retract the nose cone and you get to see the earth through the, the cupola? Yeah. So, uh, it was actually, it wasn't until the, the morning of our, our second day that we actually, um, we actually opened the, um, the forward hatch to even see inside the cupola. So even as the, the nose cone opens nominally as part of our on orbit activation, uh, your, your kind of your forward bulkhead Dracos, um, which, which are the the most optimal thrusters for a a Delta V maneuver, um, are concealed under the the nose cone. So it has to open. It's a pretty big deal if it doesn't. And then that's what we use to, to raise and lower our orbits and obviously eventually to come home. So, so that, that came, that comes open pretty quick after arriving on orbit, but you don't get to really see anything out of that cupola until you open the forward hatch. And we didn't do that till the next morning. Now we we all had incredible views out of the the dragon eyes, the two two windows out okay. of the side of it. Um, but uh, what's very common throughout all human spaceflight, although it's not not talked about a bunch because it, it's been limited to just a handful of governments, and a large reason you're doing this is you know there's a there's a national pride element and like a hero element, so you don't really talk about people being sick. But reality is like throughout all of human spaceflight history, 50% feel horrible their first couple of days on orbit, really bad. And I think some of the good books from the, you know, Apollo and Gemini era to touch on that. So I, you know, we, our odds, you know, played out exactly right. 50% of the crew was not feeling great. And um, opening up that, that forward hatch, uh, which is only going to throw a, you know, a million more overwhelming <laughs> sensations uh, would not have been uh, the wise thing. So what we, sure. you know, we did was get our, get our crew members healthy and the next day we opened it. But uh, it was unbelievable um, really, I mean, the earth, 
look, I mean, it looks just like if you go on YouTube or anything and you see some high resolution pictures or video of Earth, it does look like that. I mean, it, it's just the lights are just so much more powerful. It feels like it's just radiating so much more energy off of it. It's, a, it's, quite, it's quite intense when you, when you actually see it like that. Wow. So speaking of the inside of the capsule, can you talk us a little bit about what is it like inside the spacecraft? Can you kind of give us a, a walk around of it, if you will? Yeah, it's, uh, well, f by space spacecraft standards, it's actually quite large. Um, so I say that because, for, you know, for the last, you know, 10 years or, or so, I mean, it's either, a, you know, it's either a dragon or it's a Soyuz, and a Soyuz is a super claustrophobia event. And dragon is, like I said, it's very, very spacious by that standard. Uh, and certainly in microgravity, when you can use all of the volume, uh, it's even more so. So, um, you know, essentially you almost have three, three layers or levels, if you will. So the kind of the bottom floor, which is, uh, which is where we store cargo. So we have several kind of cargo racks there, which would be, you know, food. Um, you can put your science and research experiments in there and such. Um, so it's a main storage area. That is a great workspace. So a lot of the science and research we would do down there. Your kind of mid-deck, if you will, is what when you see uh, the video footage or, or whatnot of the four seats, uh, and your kind of crew displays, that's kind of your mid-deck. That's another perfectly fine, like, you know, living area. That's where a lot of people would, would, would sleep. Uh, and you tend to hang around there quite a bit because it's, it's where you're getting all your, you know, you're, you're building situational awareness off your displays there. And then uh, your kind of, your, your upper deck, if you will, would be, um, you know, above the crew displays. It's where the bathroom is, but it's also where the, you know, the, the forward hatches, which takes you into the, the cupola, which is like, that's your bonus level. Because that in itself was not small. Like you could fit a couple people in it. Uh, so I mean, it, it 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 definitely enhanced the volume of the vehicle. So if that if that helps build That's a little awesome. bit of it, what it looked like. And Chris, think about some of the Apollo guys that we've been fortunate enough to talk yeah. to. I think they yeah. would be they wouldn't know what to do I, with all of that. I, uh, there's a Gemini capsule mock-up out there right Ooh, now, yes. and I I couldn't imagine. Two weeks in two space weeks. on Gemini Seven <laughs> with with somebody else. Yeah, yeah, exactly. As Frank says, with a sailor. With as Frank says, yeah. Oh my god! Wow! Oh, that's incredible. Um, you know what part? What part did you enjoy the most about the flight? Was it the view, or was there another element to it? Uh, I mean, to me, you know, the uh, I was always just kind of focused on on the mission and all of its objectives. So I, I didn't really try and slow down too much. Which which is like I, I certainly look back on it and said I could I could have done that differently. Um, but I was looking at our timeline and what was the next things. I mean, when you're in space, um, you have to make every minute, every second count. So, you know, mission control basically, um, builds out a timeline, you know, down to the minute. So to me, you know, I, you know, I, I think like the, you know, some of the greatest joy was coming back to earth and knowing that we got everything that we had set out to, to get accomplished, uh, completed. But when I look back on it, I, I think that, um, you know, what wasn't, uh, as obvious to me in space, but now is very clear, was just really watching every one of my crew members be themselves. And, um, and that was what was so different about Inspiration4, right? I mean, you, you, these, these weren't, you know, some of the most highly screened individuals in history, like it had been every time up till that point, right? right? I mean, uh, you know, watching, you know, uh, Dr. Proctor, Cyan, paint and do her poetry, uh, you know, Haley Arsenault, she was, uh, she was up in the cupola, you know, taking a picture, you know, of herself holding a picture of when she was 10 years old going through cancer treatment with no hair. And now she has like all this, you know, great hair that's out, you know, <laughs> floating throughout the capsule or, you know, uh, Chris Zimbrowski, he was playing the, the ukulele. And like at the time, every one of those is 
well, that that's not on, necessarily on the timeline. You know, that could be free time, but like that's not may not be what our science or research experiment should have been in the moment. But really, that was what this whole thing was about. I mean, it was it was about inspiring you know everyday people about what what our future could hold. You know, in this in this you know really unexplored final frontier. And uh, so that's when I look back on it and say, like, I think those were some of the most special moments in space. So at the conclusion of this flight, you know, you, you could have said, okay, always wanted to go to space. I, I did that in a big way. You know, first all civilian orbital mission, uh, you know, extremely high orbit mission, all these sorts of things. You might have just said, you know, okay, I'm going to go buy a cigarette boat or I'm going <laughs> to go do this or go do that. But, uh, but you've really driven yourself uh, to create Polaris and an ongoing space program. So can you tell me about the, the goals for the, for the next mission and, and the future of Polaris and how that all works together? Well, I, I did think that, um, that I was done after uh, coming back from Inspiration4. I mean, prior to Inspiration4, there were conversations about what subsequent missions could look like. And, and to me, they, they, had to, you know, they had to build off Inspiration4, but they had to be more, I don't know, tests and developmental, things that would be real building blocks that could help um, SpaceX achieve their, their vision of, of um, making life multiplanetary. But I, uh, after Inspiration4, and I, I really remember it, after we came back, saw our families, then we were taken away for, for some science experiments, somebody pointed out that, you know, Elon tweeted that he was, you know, going to make a 50 million contribution to St. Jude, which put us way over the goal that we had established. And at that point, I was like, it, you know, it, it, it's not going to get any better than this. Like, we, we, we literally achieved everything we set out to do. Like, the bar is really high, and um, what, a, what a great time to step back from it all. And... Uh, you know, and, and then a couple of weeks after the mission, um, I was invited to Starbase, Texas and, and did meet with Elon. And, you know, he talked about what some really great objectives could be that need to get done, um, again, in order to kind of help realize SpaceX's, you know, vision of, of making life multiplanetary. And he's like, we, we got to go really high. We got to go, you know, we got to go, you know, up to and eventually through, uh, you know, the Van Allen belts again. And that's going to help us inform vehicle architecture design and there's obviously a human physiology component to that. We need to do a spacewalk, and the suits can't cost, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. They need to be mass produced for tens of thousands of people, maybe on Mars someday. And um, so we set, you know, talked through a series of missions that would ultimately culminate in in the first crewed flight of Starship. And uh, and this seemed this all seemed right because uh, you know Inspiration Four was supposed to open the door for all the other exciting missions to follow, and what was discussed was a, a series of some pretty incredible missions. So. You know, it was basically approach it jointly, and you know, we called it the Polaris program, and uh, now we have our first mission, Polaris Dawn, which, even though it was announced in uh, you know February of '22, uh, we're probably now within five six months of of launching, which is pretty cool. And am I remembering correctly that in that mission you're planning an EVA? We are. So, uh, so you're going to do a, you'll be the first civilian spacewalk. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, uh, you know, whether it's first commercial or whatnot, it's, uh, we, have, we have a bunch of exciting objectives. First, uh, we will fly the, uh, the highest Earth orbit, um, you know, so it'll beat the, uh, the Gemini 11 record, uh, about 1,400 kilometers. And really, it's entirely based on just getting close to the Van Allen radiation belts. And um, I mean, Dragon is designed without radiation hardening. I mean, everything in mass is obviously a, a big problem in, uh, in space flight. So if you want to deal with radiation, you can either put a, you know, take a big mass penalty of, of radiation hardening a vehicle or build in multiple layers of 
um, redundancy in the avionics architecture. That's how Dragon is designed. The I, I mean, you know, Starship, you know, can certainly afford uh, taking on additional mass, but. The idea is uh, we'll go up and see, uh, we'll get a bunch of good data from, from that radiation environment and see if that kind of triple redundancy architecture that we, we've, we've planned is, is, is correct. We'll get a bunch of good science and research data from it. Then we'll come down to about a 750 kilometer apogee. We will uh, vent the entire vehicle down to vacuum. So as far as we know, this is the first time that you have four people doing an EVA um, because there's no airlock on Dragon. So we'll vent the entire vehicle down. We'll all be in the new uh, EVA suits that SpaceX has developed. Uh, two of us will exit the vehicle, and two will stay in the vehicle to provide uh, support. Uh, our third object, so that's our second objective. Our third objective is we'll communicate over Starlink laser links, which uh, which is really important. You know, on Inspiration Four, um, you know, we had about eighty percent comm coverage throughout that mission. It was the first time human beings were in orbit and did not have were not the highest priority from a national communication asset perspective. Now imagine a future where you have like lots of starships and dragons and everything in space. You have hundreds of thousands of people. You're gonna overwhelm and saturate the heck out of, you know, kind of the the legacy, you know, ground stations and TDR satellites. So you know, you need the infrastructure to support lots of people in space. Starlink, which does a great job connecting the world here on, you know, here on Earth, uh, also does a great job connecting vehicles and assets in space. So that's our third objective. And then uh, we have five days of science and research to get through as well. That's absolutely incredible to sit here and think about. Well, all of this is incredible. So I think, well, you know, we're first we're going to go see uh, how everything holds up when we expose ourselves to a bunch of radiation. And then after that, <laughs> you know, we're going to let all the air out of the ship and step outside and see how it goes. It's, it's, I don't mean, I, and I'm not making light of it. It's just, it's just that just jaw dropping. And it's not often that I've ever been speechless, probably period, <laughs> yes. let alone on the show, but I'm, I'm in awe. This is amazing. Um, it is absolutely incredible. Th this is why we announced it in February of 22, and uh, <laughs> we'll probably launch somewhere around you know April of 24. It's uh, th There was a lot of ambitious objectives for the first Polaris mission, and um, so there's been a lot of development work, but we're getting there. That's awesome. Um, one of the questions I always like to ask, you know, it, when we get a chance to talk to astronauts and when you think of flying in space, you think of liftoff, is how do you think the liftoff will be? How do you think it will feel differently going from – the Falcon rocket to the Starship rocket. Um, you know, I don't know. We don't we don't have a lot of data yet on that. Um, you know, even the first orbital test flight of Starship, I don't think is going to be you know correlate perfectly for what it'll be like when it's fully loaded for uh, for a human spaceflight mission. What I will say about like Falcon coming off the pad is it is it is not a throw you in the back of the seat type thing or you know stepping on the gas at a stoplight. It is. I mean, your, your thrust to weight at that point is so close that it feels like it's barely moving. I mean, really, if you're not looking at the screens and seeing the altitude climb, you really have no idea. Really? It's, uh, I mean, it's only on a, uh, you know, call it a, you know, nine and a half minute or so journey to orbit. It's probably the last 30 seconds of the first stage and the last 30 seconds of the second stage where you're actually at like four and a half Gs and you're really getting some, you know, really feeling that acceleration. But uh, it's quite pleasant up until that point. I mean, you know, there's a lot of good loud noises and grumbling going on. So you, you know, you're on a rocket, but it is, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not like, you know, you're in a centrifuge getting spun at nine G's or something. <laughs> so it, about four and a half G would be the, the peak peak on nine. during the ascent. Yeah. And that's, again, the last kind of 30 seconds of first stage, last 30 seconds of second stage. And then it's a lot of that on the way back home. I mean, like when you're taking all that energy out through reentry, you're at like four and a half G's for probably five, six minutes. Um, so it's a little bit of a different event then. 
<laughs> Still remarkable. So I'm also a huge fan of, of all kinds of space flight, just like Hal is. One of the things I always love is where the names come from. Mm-hmm. And where where does the name Polaris Dawn get its its origin? What what is the story behind that? Yeah. So I mean the, you know the Polaris program. I mean we looked at that as it's essentially, it, you know it's 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 going to culminate with Starship, which should be our north star to really you know making you know space flight accessible to everyone. I mean we think Starship could be you know again what the you know, whether it's the DC-3 or the 737, whichever you choose to use, um, of human spaceflight. So it's our North Star, as is Polaris, and Polaris has uh, got three stars essentially in it. Uh, its constellation. Polaris isn't contemplated to have three missions, so that's where, that's where it came up with. That's- yeah, it's so in- incredible to, to think about, you know, these things happening and, and you having these objectives um, aligning with SpaceX – what they want to do, what they want to have happen. And as a group, you're a group of people that are accomplishing these things without sort of, frankly, doing what so many of the rest of us have done, sort of sitting there waiting for the government to do it. Um, What does it mean to you, not only to be doing these things, but to be doing them um, on the entrepreneurial side or the private side versus you know, the, the, the rigors of, of NASA and a, and a full, and, and I'm not saying one is, is better than the other, but that's something that is remarkable to us. So what does that mean to you to be on that civilian side of it? Well, I think it's so important. Um, you know, it's, uh, I mean, the government has the resources to uh, kind of give a spark that is often needed f- for eventually, you know, industry and entrepreneurs uh, to follow and really kick off that innovation machine. Um, you know, obviously we've seen that, in, whether it's in aviation or, you know, like deep sea diving, there's a, a number of domains that really at first it required the expertise of, you know, what I would say is, you know, government government funding to, to kind of kick it off. But in the case of spaceflight, I mean, 60 years was way too long, I think, to have gone by. And, and what happens is I think a lot of things have atrophied. There, there was a lot of excessive consolidation, which meant that you were paying a lot more for, for very little. And, and it's unfortunate because at some point it, it can almost like constrain our abilities to succeed. And, and it almost becomes like a ceiling on... Um, I don't know, the competitive capabilities of our nation. I say all that because I, I, I truly believe, and this is not a SpaceX, you know, fanboy type of statement, but um, if, if you didn't have SpaceX right now, I would be very confident that China would, would get to the moon before we're able to return to it. And, and that shouldn't happen considering, considering we won the space race of the, of the 60s. So um, you, need, you need outside industry, which are, again, there's better capital allocators, to be able to move faster and create new technologies that can change the world. And it, and it all, you know, comes back. It's, it's, all, it's still all patriotic. It still comes back to making our country, you know, great. But uh, again, you look at things that SpaceX has done, landing a rocket on a ship in 2015. They've done it more than 200 times since. No one else has done it even once. You know, thank goodness for SpaceX, but now we need 100 other companies just like them across all of defense and aerospace. Um, I think it's so vital for, for the, 
you know, again, the competitiveness of our nation. So I'm thrilled to be on that side of it. Um, but more than acknowledged, for sure, I mean, the pioneers, you know, we are totally standing on the shoulders of giants, not, not just the early astronauts, but all the engineers and scientists, the people who figured out how to make all of this possible without the computing power, the technical know-how that is so readily available today. Like, we're very incredibly fortunate. So do you think you'll ever go to the moon, Jared Isaacman, personally? It, it's not uh it's not it's not one of the three Polaris missions so uh, <laughs> okay, we've, fair enough. we've got uh we've got three exciting missions ahead and, and uh and I'm not saying that what you're, what you're already doing is amazing but I mean I, I might have asked you if you think you'll ever be on Mars it's I, I think we have three incredible missions that uh if we get to that third mission and again that's the first crew first crewed flight of starship I mean, it's an, that'll be an end-to-end first time you have a fully re, fully reusable first and second stage. Um, you know, with more habitable volume than the entire International Space Station. I mean, it'll have space-based refueling, which obviously we know what that has done for aviation here. Uh, it has even more utility in, in, in orbit. If you can top off a starship, you can go anywhere in probably our solar system from low Earth orbit. It's pretty incredible to think about. So, yeah, we've got three awesome missions ahead of ourselves. And um, if Starship is successful, I think the world will be very different. So It's just, again, uh, so inspiring and you know certainly the name for the inspiration four program was couldn't have been uh, better chosen because this whole story is is uh, uplifting and fascinating oh absolutely this is uh, incredible like i said i'm i don't get speechless very often on here hal knows uh, better than that uh and i know we're fighting the clock but i i've got to ask about the mig 29 because yeah, i was gonna say i've got to sneak mig 29 questions in it's one, I, I really enjoy that airplane it's incredible to think about that we've talked to you this long <laughs> and you know the mig 29 is one of the coolest things we've seen at air venture in a long time anybody who was here you know last summer certainly remembers that big beautiful airplane and how incredible that is and yet you know you've done sixty-seven thousand other interesting <laughs> yeah. things uh that this could be a do you want to just be the permanent guest on this show yeah, from here on could we talk, talk you into that <laughs> happy to come back anytime <laughs> oh, oh, we'd love to have you but but please yeah yeah tell we us gotta, gotta ask you about the mig 29 how what, what is that thing like to fly it's an incredible airplane super lucky um i think um you know paul allen i i was able to purchase it from his estate and um you know he spared no expense. I mean, I've no doubt it's, a, it's finer than any MiG-29 that came off the assembly line in <laughs> Russia. Uh, incredibly well-maintained. And he, and also, fortunately, he didn't use it much. So he uh, preserved a lot of the life limits for me to uh, be able to take advantage of. But it's, uh, it's awesome. It was great to bring it here to, you know, we we're two summers in a row now at Oshkosh and uh, hopefully bring it back next year. We've been able to um, use it very well, very effectively for training. Uh, I mean, it's a fourth-gen fighter, so you can pull a lot of Gs, go very fast in it. And, um, yeah, it's a great airplane. I think my favorite comment that I've heard, and, and Hal, let me know if you've heard it as well, from, from multiple people uh, that that I love to hear is them saying, I never thought I'd get to see one of these fly in person. Oh, and yeah. I think that's so cool to hear time and time again from people that you're saying, this is so cool. I never thought I'd get to see one of these. And uh, thank you for sharing that aircraft with us. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks on behalf of everybody who's been here to see it. And 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 speaking of, of thank yous, uh, Jared, we're also very grateful to you for your support of EA as a lifetime member. That is, uh, uh, that is a deeply meaningful uh, investment you've made in us, and uh, and we appreciate it. Um, on on along those lines, what bringing the bringing the Mig and the other jets and and. And then having been here before, was it? What did it mean to you to be able to bring the the MiG twenty nine 
to of all air shows of all events to Oshkosh that first time. Yeah, I, I mean, basically, my whole air show career started here. Um, so actually, it was uh, before even the Black Diamond Jet Team came to be. I uh, I took uh, an A4 and an F4 from the Collings Foundation here in 2010, and uh, so I'd just gotten checked out in the A4 Skyhawk. Oh, and I remember uh, that very well when yeah. that was here. Yeah, and uh, so I flew that, and Jive Kirby was flying the F4 Phantom. It's where I met uh, Snort, um, who was flying the uh, the F86 Saber, the yeah. the Mark IV, I think it was Mark VI. May May he rest in peace, yeah. Snort. Yeah, terrible. Um, so it was uh, so it was actually here where we were doing kind of that uh, you know Vietnamish uh, heritage flight, and uh, and kind of met the you know the incredible friends that we would go on together to bring, you know, to create the Black Diamond Jet Team, which became, you know, an airshow team on the circuit for many years. And then ultimately we evolved that into Draken, which was the defense aerospace company. So kind of my whole airshow and kind of ex-military type flying aircraft, that journey really began here in, uh, you know, in summer of 2010 here at Oshkosh. Fantastic. Oh, sure. Appreciate it. I had no idea. I remember that year uh, coming up here. I had no idea you brought yeah. the A4 up. That's super cool. I remember being over at Weeks when uh, Jive taxied up in the yeah. F4, and I got to be over there to sort of help receive that and just thinking that was one of the coolest things. And so you were part of that uh, part of that situation as well. That's yeah. a, it, the A4 is an under – it's an airplane with a huge history, too. It just doesn't get the – the love affair of a lot of the other airplanes. Well, if you've if the for those that have flown it have fallen in love with it, that's for sure. It's an unbelievable airplane. So many versions of it. I mean, Drakken, we had the the end models with the juicy motor. Oh, it's it, I mean, until I started flying the MiG twenty nine, that was my favorite airplane. So wow, and the MiG twenty nine is your favorite yeah, now. It's it's got to be. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> well, that and you know SpaceX. Well, yeah, exactly. But you know, that. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Jared, I know we are up against uh, against the clock, so very reluctantly we'll uh, we'll wrap this episode up. But uh, thank you so much once again, uh, not just for being on the show, but for uh, for being here. As Chris mentioned, as we're recording, it's Space Day at the museum. You're one of our featured speakers. Uh, thank you for bringing the airplanes, uh, letting people see those magnificent uh, magnificent fleet of yours, uh, and thank you for uh, as perhaps as. Uh, you know, unabashed as it sounds, thank you for being an inspiration. I mean that as sincerely as I can. Um, with that, uh, thanks as always to everybody out there for listening. Uh, thanks to everyone who takes the time to leave us a review, whether that's over on iTunes or Google Play or Stitcher, wherever you consume your podcasts. We're always uh, grateful to see the, the good comments there and the uh, constructive feedback as well. You can always uh, email us directly if you have feedback. Send that to feedback at eaa.org, and that'll find its way to us. You can also go to inspire.ea.org, which is our blog, and every episode has its dedicated page, and you can leave comments there. So with that, thanks once again to our, our wonderful guest, Jared. Thanks to everybody who worked so hard to make this show possible. Thanks to everyone for listening, and we'll catch up to you next time when you're cleared to land on the Green Dot. <laughs>